Society deems a person insane who has lost touch with reality and has become irrational in his thinking. My experience has been that insane people have extreme forms of pride that have so deeply affected them that they lose the ability to differentiate between right and wrong, real and unreal. But doesn't all of this describe the life of a typical sex addict? Men who habitually give over to sexual sin enter their own form of insanity. If you have been held in the grip of sexual sin, whether it is addiction to pornography or some other form, those moments of clarity after you've given in yet again and gone down that dead-end street to destruction, only to reap the inevitable consequences of dishonor, dissatisfaction, and despair, or worse, discovery, disgrace, and devastated lives, you've had to have said to yourself at some point, this is insane, and it is. Did you know that sexual sin makes you crazy? Today, we are looking at the fact that sexual sin is the epitome of insanity. I'm your host, Jim Lewis. This is Purity for Life. Steve Gallagher gets us started today with another installment in his powerful series prepared for our YouTube channel entitled 20 Truths That Helped Me in My Battle with Porn Addiction. And this one is called Sexual Sin is the Epitome of Insanity. He will explain to us that sex addicts display most of the common traits that characterize people who are insane. I think you'll find this fascinating and very insightful. Okay, truth number five. Sexual addiction is the epitome of insanity. Solomon said, the hearts of the sons of men are full of evil and insanity is in their hearts throughout their lives. If that's true of mankind in general, how much more so is it true of those who ruin their lives in the pursuit of something that doesn't satisfy? How insane is that? Dictionary.com defines insanity as derangement of the mind. Webster calls it a severely disordered state of mind. Whichever definition you like, Society deems a person insane who has lost touch with reality and has become irrational in his thinking. This kind of insanity has come about through years of sinful thinking and living. My experience has been that insane people have extreme forms of pride that have so deeply affected them that they lose the ability to differentiate between right and wrong, real and unreal. But doesn't all of this describe the life of a typical sex addict? Men who habitually give over to sexual sin enter their own form of insanity. And here is where I like Albert Einstein's definition of insanity. He said it's doing the same thing over and over and expecting different results. 
And doesn't that perfectly describe the futility of habitual sin? Repeating behavior over and over, and yet at the same time hoping it will magically go away. There are actually many similarities between the lifestyles of people deemed insane and sexual addicts. Although most sex addicts can still function in life, you know, hold a responsible job, pay the bills, interact with other people, and so on, their thinking about sexual and spiritual matters can become pretty irrational. Consider some of the outlandish things sex addicts think and do. The man who ransacks garbage dumpsters looking for a scrap of pornography. The exhibitionist who really thinks others will be turned on by seeing his private parts. The husband who enjoys his wife with other men. The John who squanders thousands of dollars on empty encounters with call girls. The peeping Tom who spends countless hours prowling around neighborhoods hoping to catch a glimpse of flesh. These are but a few examples of the bizarre behavior that comes with sexual sin. And that's not even mentioning the really whacked out stuff, such as S&M, B&D, self-affixiation, weird fetishes, cannibalism, and so on. But beyond all of this, there exists a number of interesting similarities between a sex addict and an insane person. The first is that both individuals are extremely self-centered. The mentally deranged person is so obsessed with himself that he completely loses sight of other people's welfare, concerns, and rights. He becomes so huge in his own thinking that he sees himself as the center of the universe. And the ultimate in this type of crazed thinking is when a man claims to be God or Jesus Christ something that occurs more frequently than you might realize. While the typical sex addict does not become quite this delusional, his thinking is gradually permeated by extreme selfishness as he allows his illicit desires to take precedence over everything else in life. For instance, his obsession with pleasure will drive him to do things that will devastate his wife and children. Like the double-minded man of James 1, he vacillates between good and evil. When in his right mind, he hates what his actions do to loved ones. But even the best of intentions evaporate when the madness of sensuality overtakes him. Once the fire of lust is ignited within him, everything else fades from view. Another commonality of the two is that they are both willing to do things that they know will bring harm to themselves. People deemed insane often destroy their lives. And what is so puzzling to those around them is their willingness to do so over the most ridiculous things. But how is that any different for those involved in habitual immorality? Consider the homosexual who has illicit encounters with dozens of men knowing the inevitability of acquiring AIDS. What about the man who commits adultery even though he knows it will cost him his marriage and his family? Think about the man who commits sexual crimes knowing that a few minutes of indulgence could very well put him in prison for years. What else but madness of mind could cause a person to do things that will only devastate his life? A third common denominator between these two people is that they both treat fiction as truth and truth as fiction. Losing touch with reality, of course, is what defines a person as insane. 
But isn't this also the case with the so-called Christian sex addict? For instance, he can read the warning like the one found in 1 Corinthians 6 where it says, do not be deceived. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor homosexuals will inherit the kingdom of God, but then convince himself that it doesn't apply to him. Only madness in the heart can account for such self-deception. Another commonality of these two is that they both make trivialities the focus of their lives. When you see a bag lady pushing her cart full of junk down the sidewalk, each piece of which she treats as though it were a priceless jewel, you know instinctively that she slipped over the line into insane thinking. How is it any different for the man who has the treasures of heaven within his grasp but squanders them for a few fleeting experiences of pleasure. Sexual pleasure has become such an enormous idol in his heart that everything in life revolves around it. Of course, most normal married people enjoy their times of intimacy with their spouses, but it's kept in its proper place in life. For the sex addict, sexual pleasure is everything. The final common denominator I'll mention is that they both lose their sense of trust for others. Even those individuals who have proven they only have their best interests in mind. And it goes without saying that many delusional people think that others are against them. They imagine the zaniest conspiracies, everybody's out to get them. The sex addict can also become paranoid. The wicked flee when no one is pursuing, Solomon wrote, but the righteous are bold as a lion. The guilt over one's behavior can have this effect upon a sinner's thinking. Since his secret actions are so huge in his mind, he imagines that other people know what he's up to. His guilt can drive him into the most delusional thinking. Of course, it goes without saying that in both cases, paranoia flourishes when self is huge. The bigger a person's self-life, the more he imagines that others are thinking about him. What a letdown when he discovers that other people hardly even notice him. For the so-called Christian sex addict, this suspicion carries over into his relationship with God as well. His irrationality causes him to vacillate between extremes of presumptuous pride and unbelief about God's benevolent character. One minute he's convinced God's grace covers all his sins, no matter how wicked his life and how unrepentant he might be. Then the next minute he's sure that God doesn't even care about him or he would do more to help him. Yes, there are many comparisons between the insane person and the sexual sinner. But the good news is that as we immerse ourselves in the Word of God, earnestly living out its principles, we shall know the truth and the truth shall set us free. Praise the Lord. Here at Pure Life, we are biblical counselors. That is to say, all of our counsel comes directly from the Word of God. We believe that sexual addiction is an intense emotional attachment to sin. Addiction is a sin problem, and only God has the solution for sin. We are not psychologists and don't want to be. The word psychology means the study of the soul, and we believe that only the creator of the soul can heal it. 
So we put men in the Word of God, and the Holy Spirit uses the Word to change a man's heart, renew his mind, and therefore change his behavior. It does little good to amend a man's behavior if his heart hasn't changed, because he'll always go back to what his heart worships and his mind believes. But when God changes a heart and renews a mind, you end up with a new man. Now, I've laid this foundation because, frankly, for the rest of my time, I'm going to talk about psychology. One thing that all social scientists can do, and some do quite well, is to study human behavior and report out what they find about how men consistently behave. A scientist will analyze what he observes and record repetitions and patterns. This is the basis of all science. And not surprisingly, sex addicts all behave the same way. There's a discernible pattern to sin. James writes in chapter 1 of his letter that a man is tempted according to his own desires, deceives himself, gives in to the act of disobedience, and the result is always death. Every sex addict walks through this pattern every time. It is the self-deception that is critical to the process. He has to lie to himself and believe his own lies in order to give himself permission to disobey God and do what he knows to be wrong. Though he knows the consequences of his sinful behavior will only lead to guilt, separation from God, injury to himself and others, he puts all of this out of his mind and pursues the object of his desire because he wants the very temporary high that comes from his sin. A rational person looking at this would quite simply conclude that such a thing is insanity. You know this brings death. You know it. And yet you do it anyway. Patrick Carnes is a highly regarded clinical psychologist who has spent his career studying the behavior of sex addicts. He is the author of such books as Don't Call It Love and Out of the Shadows. And while we may not agree with psychological methods of treatment, we cannot fault this man's observations and analysis. In his book, Out of the Shadows, Carnes basically says that all addictions are the result of insane thinking, and this is nowhere truer than among sex addicts. He writes that addicts progressively go through stages in which they retreat from the reality of friends, family, and work. Their secret lives become more real than their public lives. In other words, they lose touch with reality. He says, and I quote, Leading a fantasy double life is a distortion of reality. An essential part of sanity is being grounded in reality. So in the sense that the addict distorts reality, the sexual addiction becomes a form of insanity. He explains that all human behavior flows out of a man's belief system. And that is the filter through which all his information passes. We agree. He sees reality. 
makes decisions, and behaves according to what is true for him, what he believes. Again, we agree. The Bible is very clear on that. So because the addict's perception of reality is completely skewed, he acts according to his reprobate mind, to borrow the descriptor from the Apostle Paul. He completely ignores all the possible and even probable consequences of his behavior, believing that he is exempt or immune, and that such things as getting caught, bringing pain upon his spouse, losing his job, destroying his marriage, wrecking his life, incurring the judgment of God on his sin, will never happen to him. But Paul writes, Be not deceived. God will not be mocked. Whatever a man sows, that he also will reap. Sin has its wages, and one day it will pay out. Most of the men who come to Pure Life end up here because their sin began to cost them dearly. And they come not just to rid themselves of their sin, but to save their marriages, their sanity, and their very lives. Speaking still about the insanity of sexual addiction, Carnes offers a list of lies that a man must tell himself and believe in order to do what he does. His list includes these, and every one of them is untrue. If I don't have it every few days, the pressure builds up. I'm oversexed and have to meet my needs. What she doesn't know won't hurt her. Every guy would do this if he could. If only my wife would be more responsive. Cybersex is just electrons. This isn't real. With the stress I'm under, I deserve it. It's my way of relaxing. This isn't hurting anyone. Carnes concludes that whatever the rationalization, the form of self-deception, it further cuts the addict off from the reality of his behavior. We agree with these conclusions, that there is an insanity to sexual sin because we see it every day, and not because Carnes says so, but because the delusion that comes with sin is clearly taught in the Bible. The Bible describes perfectly man's behavior when he pursues sin, and he acts the same way every time. He lies to himself, believes his own lies, justifies, blame shifts, separates from God and others, falls into guilt, remorse, despair, and then to make himself feel better, believes his own lies and repeats the insane cycle all over again. It is no wonder that a social scientist can describe this typically human pattern of sin revealed by the Word of God. When the psalmist David was repenting of his sexual sin, he cried out to God, You desire truth in the inmost being. There is no better antidote to the insanity of sexual sin than a consistent exposure to the truth and an unwavering commitment to speak nothing but the truth. 
This is where the Holy Spirit comes in and why we advocate strongly a biblical approach to sexual sin. First, the Word of God is the truth, and reading it and studying it fills our mind with the truth. The Holy Spirit comes alongside His Word and applies the truth to our hearts and renews our minds. He shows us the lies we've believed and replaces them with the truth about God and about ourselves. A commitment to transparency and accountability means no more secrets and no more lies. We have to believe the truth, speak the truth, and live according to the truth. Insanity loses touch with reality. Sexual sin makes you insane. You live in a world of fantasy and order your life accordingly. You believe lies and tell lies. Sanity, being of sound mind, is living in reality, believing, speaking, and living the truth. Believing a lie binds you to that lie, but believing the truth sets you free. Nathan Bohr is a biblical counselor here at Pure Life. He has had considerable experience in navigating the obstacle course of counseling students who have previously been diagnosed and treated by secular psychiatrists for their sex addiction and a host of other maladies. They come to us with their minds clouded with sometimes five or six legally prescribed psychotropic drugs that make it difficult for them to think and feel and make decisions, much less hear from God and respond in obedience to His Word. And yet God is still going to hold every man responsible for his decisions and actions in this life. Today we talk about why the sex addict cannot plead insanity on Judgment Day. Nathan, welcome. Thanks for being with us today. Thank you very much, Jim. It's a pleasure to be with you. All right, let's introduce our topic. Steve Gallagher has produced a new series of teachings for our YouTube channel called 20 Truths That Helped Me in My Battle with Sex Addiction. And one of the episodes is called Sexual Addiction is the Epitome of Insanity. And he makes the case that sex addicts live in delusion and in a world of fantasy, divorced from reality, which is the very definition of insanity. Many people like Einstein's uh, definition of insanity, that insanity is doing the same thing over and over again and expecting a different result. And sex addicts do that all the time. But even secular psychologists like Patrick Harnes admits that a sex addict does live according to delusion. He lives in fantasy. He has to divorce himself from reality in order to do the things that he does. And again, that's the very definition of insanity. At the same time, Steve Gallagher has written an article called No One Can Plead Insanity on Judgment Day. 
because God still holds every man responsible for his own choices and his own behaviors. This is our topic for today. You and I are going to talk about the fact that we can't plead insanity when we stand before God in judgment. First of all, do you agree with that? Absolutely. (laughs) Okay. One major impact that psychology has had on our culture, including the church, is that it has created a victim mentality. No one, it seems, takes responsibility for their actions anymore. I'm not responsible for my behavior because of what happened to me when I was young, when I was growing up. It's not my fault. And even here at Pure Life, we have men, and it's a sad situation, but they come and they tell us, I was molested when I was young, and it opened up sexuality to me at an early age. Uh, I came across porn when I was five, and I was instantly hooked. Or I was diagnosed at uh, age six when I entered school with ADHD, with bipolar, with attention deficit disorder. Uh, I've been diagnosed with depression, with schizophrenia, with explosive personality disorder. And that's why I behave the way I do. You've had considerable experience with this personally. And as a biblical counselor, you deal with counselees who come to you on psychotropic drugs, they've been labeled with some psychological label, and this has defined who they are. They wear this label as, a, as something that defines their personality. What has been your experience, and how do you deal with this in your counselees? That's an excellent question, Jim. The first thing that I will do with a counselee that comes in and a victim mentality is go to the Word of God. Mm. Uh, we will spend a considerable time reading Scripture. And most of the time that a counselee comes to me in a victim mentality, they recently arrived at the Pure Life campus. Mm-hmm. And that can be quite shocking in of itself. So I don't address it right away. But we do go to the Word of God concerning their issues considering their problems. We look at sufficiency scriptures. We look at conditional promises in the Word of God. And then I begin to ask some difficult questions after a couple of weeks. Like, is this what your doctor says, or is this what the Bible says, and which one is true? Mm -hmm. And is your doctor going to have to give an account for your actions, or are you going to have to give an account for your actions? Because you are saying as a follower of Christ, that the Word of God is sufficient and it is true and it is everything you need for a life and godliness according to the knowledge of Jesus. So you establish with them that they agree that the Word of God is true. Yes. That the Word of God has authority. Yes. That the Word of God is sufficient to give them everything they need for life and godliness. Correct. And then you point to them that their behavior does not line up with Scripture. That is correct. And as loudly as they can say they believe and they obey, their actions are ultimately the loudest form of communication that they have. Mm -hmm. 
So when a guy comes in believing that he is a victim from what has happened to him in the past, he's also just as delusioned as the person living in the future. Neither of those are actual realities. At this point, we only have the present, we have the Word of God, and we have His Spirit living inside of us. So if the problems that happened 4,000 years ago were dealt with by Scripture, by the Lord, why aren't the problems that He is facing today also being addressed biblically first instead of, well, this didn't happen 4,000 years ago. This this wasn't an issue 4,000 years ago, and most of the time it was. There really is nothing new under right, the sun. Right. Sexual sin's been around since the beginning. Yes. You're a new student who's been to a psychologist, who's been told that he has a particular problem, whatever it is. He's been diagnosed and prescribed medication. You and I both have had students who have been on five and six medications at the same time, and some of the medications that they take counteract the side effects of the other medications that they're on. Correct. In your experience, has receiving their diagnosis and taking their medication helped them at all in solving their sexual addiction? No, and I think that you'll get the same answer from them. However, we have to, as counselors, we have to be very careful Uh, addressing this with them because we are not medical professionals and we have them sign something that says they will continue to make to take their prescription as assigned by a doctor during the entirety of their program at Pure Life Ministries which becomes more difficult for the student to engage in homework because like you said when students come in on multiple different medications, they're now taking medications to counter the ill effects of the other medications. And before you know it, they're struggling to concentrate. They're struggling to sleep. They're struggling to wake up in the morning. It's affecting their whole life. If somebody's on an antidepressant, for example, the only thing that drug has really done is shift their brain into neutral, which means it's really impossible for them to think. And it's very difficult for this professing Christian student to hear from the Word of God because his brain is on drugs. That is correct. It is, uh, it is definitely more difficult for a student who is on psychotropic medicine than it is for one who is not. However, the power of the Holy Spirit knows no bounds and is able to break through Praise regardless God. of how medicated a man may come in. Now, it, it certainly is more difficult for those on medication But even the people prescribing the medications don't really, I mean, if you look into it, you know, it's almost impossible for me to talk about this without making a plug for Dr. Daniel Berger and and the ministry that the Lord has given him, uh, really taking off the, the mask of what the pharmaceutical industry is doing today. The people who are prescribing the psychotropic meds, if you dig hard enough, you will find that they have no scientific evidence that this actually makes a person better. Right. So they don't know what the effects of the medication they're giving you are. And yet they tell you with confidence that it's going to help you, but they don't have any scientific evidence that that it actually does. Okay, Nathan, let's shift gears a little bit. Okay. The biblical diagnosis is much different. We see addiction to pornography and all other forms of sexual addiction as a sin problem. The Bible uses these words to diagnose the problem. 
sin nature, deceitful heart, lust, reprobate mind, adultery, fornication, lasciviousness, homosexuality. These are sin issues. Correct. What is the typical reaction of a counselee when you tell him that he doesn't have a psychological malady, he has a sin problem? Well, the first reaction that you normally get when addressing that is the look of a deer in headlights. <laughs> it, it is a, I can't believe you're talking to me that way or, yeah. or, or making me take responsibility for my own actions because for years I've been told that it's not my fault. In fact, I've begun to believe myself that it is no longer my fault. And that is some of the scariest cases that we come across with because the power of belief is incredibly powerful. Right. And if you're not believing in the gospel of Jesus Christ, the risen Messiah, you're believing in another gospel. We were born, we were created to worship God. And we were, and in that worship, we have to believe either that God is sufficient and he created us with everything that we need, or that man has to add to God's solution for our problems. Yeah. And that is a very dangerous place that we find ourselves uh, as people who receive medication or counsel outside of the Word of God. It's interesting, Patrick Carnes' whole argument, Patrick Carnes being a nationally recognized psychologist who spent his entire career dealing with sex addiction, his whole argument is that People behave according to their belief system. What if everything you believe is a lie? Yeah. <laughs> then you live in bondage to something that isn't true. Yes. Then you're either most likely living in the future in fantasy or in the past in a victim mentality, and you are completely absent of the present reality because mm -hmm. you have developed this way of thinking over years of your life. This hasn't just happened overnight. You didn't just wake up one day and realize, hey, I'm a victim. No, you've come to a point in your life where sin is now dominating your life, your thoughts, the way you behave, the way you spend money. And then it's like a panic button comes in from an outside source or maybe the conviction of the Holy Spirit. And you don't realize that you have, in fact, been sold a lie and yeah. have been believing the lie right. for years. And when that revelation comes in, it's a very terrifying thing. And of course, we don't teach the way we do because a psychologist has happened upon the truth. We teach what we do because this is the clear word of God. Correct. You live according to a lie, you live in bondage to the lie. You live according to the truth, and the truth shall set you, set free. you free. All right. We don't spend a lot of time in biblical counseling delving into a man's past trying to find some event or some person to blame his problem on. Why is this? Because when we confess our sins, God is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. I specifically love the word all mm -hmm. because I think that if we had any idea of how much we sin against God, our heads would just explode. I, I think that in his mercy, he just lets us see little snippets. Uh, sometimes he even allows the sin that offends us to get at the sin that's offending him. Wow. So it's amazing how long-suffering God is 
in his mercy towards us, calling us to the real solution out of death and lies into truth and light and life. And uh, I find it remarkable when a man comes to take responsibility for his own actions, how much freer they leave. Um, yeah. It, it's it's amazing. It's almost a, a light and, and darkness difference. You can see it on their faces when when they receive the fact that we have all sinned, we have all fallen short. There is no temptation that is not common to man. God is sufficient. He is enough. And he will not only forgive, but he'll cleanse us from what has happened to us in the past without giving us the the right to treat his grace sloppy for the future and just use yeah, it to, yeah. as a means to sin. A man with a victim mentality will use many different devices to avoid taking responsibility. You've t- you're talking about taking responsibility for your actions. What are some of his responses that you run into? Most of the time he'll justify it, say that everybody else does it. I can do it too. Uh, another another way that he will defend himself is to say it's not that big of a deal. He'll minimize it. Okay. He'll say that, you know, what I did isn't as bad as what was done to sure. me or, or what the rest of the world is doing. Uh, another, another tactic is to blame shift. Uh, I do this because it was done to me. I do this because... Uh, it's somebody else's fault. It's, yeah. It goes back to the Garden of Eden. Yeah, the woman you gave me. Exactly, exactly. Uh, but one of the most violent responses is a counterattack. You don't know what you're talking about. Mm. You are wrong. And and that's, as a counselor, that can be a challenging position to, to sit there and, and to pres- just to preserve a calm atmosphere when someone is feeling threatened because the Lord, the word of God is putting his finger on sin in someone's life. Virtually every man who comes into Pure Life Ministries has filled out an application that says, I am a confessing Christian. I have had a conversion experience. I am born again. And yet we discover over and over again that when we sit down to counsel them according to the Word of God, we are challenging their real belief system. Correct. And they don't like that at all. That's probably the most violent conversations that you will get. That's when you receive the counterattack. It's because I was saved at the age of three. I made a profession to let Jesus into my heart, and I was saved. Well, it's not my responsibility as a counselor to judge a man whether he's been saved or not or when he was saved, but it is my responsibility as a biblical counselor to point men to the Word of God and to encourage them to work out their salvation with fear and trembling and to show them that their life looks remarkably different than what a life of Christ looks like in the Bible. How about that? So describe for me, if you will, what is the biblical prescription for dealing with a sin issue? Well, first you have to admit that it is sin and that you Mm -hmm. are responsible. You have to take full responsibility. The married men, I tell them seven words that will change their life. I was wrong. Will you forgive me? (laughs) Yeah. And they laugh, but it works. It really does work. Uh, The next thing that they need to do is repent. 
which means I stopped going the direction I was heading. I turned towards God. I cried out in humility. Right. And God sent his Holy Spirit to grant me the grace to turn towards him and to follow him where I used to follow my own desires. Mm. That's what King David did as opposed to what King Saul did. Right. After that step, you have to choose to obey. You've been set free. You don't have to act that way any longer. Are you going to? Are you going to tomorrow? I mean, depending on your own strength to obey is is a very common mistake for right. men who are new to repentance. But God gives us the grace, the strength that we need in order to obey. And once we walk in that obedience, God opens up a whole new understanding of what mercy and grace really mean. Yeah. He he shows us that sometimes mercy seems cruel, but that he knows what what is best. He shows us that grace isn't something to just cover up all of my willful disobedient sin, but it's the power to say no to sin and to walk yes. in obedience. And then after that revelation, uh, a man comes to a place where he is forced to accept and deal with the consequences of the choices that he has made. Sure. He cannot change the past. And if he chooses to dwell on it, he will be going back into the victim mentality that the Lord says he is free from. Mm-hmm. That is a huge challenge. You you have to practice putting off the old man and putting on the new man day by day. I'm not that man anymore. And that's one of the reasons I believe the program is set up as long as it is, because it takes doing this for an extended period of time with the accountability of others before men achieve the results that they came to us to see in the first place. The good news is that if sexual addiction is a sin problem, then the Bible has the answer for that. What is the biblical answer for sin? The biblical answer for sin is the cross of Jesus Christ, the forgiveness and salvation of God, the indwelling Holy Spirit, and a life of obedience leading to holiness. If we look for contentment and anything else besides God, we will always be discontent. It will always lead to disappointment. But when we are fully satisfied in him, Mm -hmm. then we start living a real Christian life. Then then the temptations to satisfy ourselves just fall to the wayside because it never satisfies. Lust is a counterfeit love anyways. Nathan, you can't plead insanity on judgment day. Because your problem was never your diagnosis, your mental issue, your emotional problem. Your problem all along was sin. And God has adequately provided everything we need for solving our sin problem. Mm -hmm. He's told us about it in his word. Mm Mm-hmm. Well, let me just say that sin makes you insane. God is a God of peace, of hope, of love. And if you're not experiencing those things, 
you're trying to get them from someplace other than their source. Right. You you plead insanity because you've made choices that make you insane. You can choose sin. God gives us the free will to do that. But there are consequences that go with those choices. And in order to turn away from those choices, you have to admit that you are wrong. God is not wrong. Let every man be a liar, but God is true. Right. So if I feel insane, it's because I have made choices in my life to follow my feelings instead of putting my foot down in faith in the direction that God is good and he does not withhold good things from his children. And he knows how to satisfy me more than I could ever satisfy myself with sex or substance or anything else. Well, you've built a strong case, and uh, I'm convinced, if no one else is, this is the clear teaching of the Word of God, and this is what we teach here at Pure Life Ministries. Thank you so much for coming in today and sharing your experience with us. My pleasure, Jim. Thank you so much for having me, and I hope that the listeners find freedom in Jesus Christ. It's a strange paradox. In order to engage in sexual sin, you have to believe your own lies. So you live in delusion. You constantly engage in fantasy. So you are divorced from reality. Your sin makes you keep secrets and tell lies. So you're withdrawn from people and live in your own little world. Then you feel compelled to engage in behaviors that only lead to your own destruction and the injury of those whom you love the most. Sexual sin is insanity. Yet God must judge our sin because we chose it and committed it willfully. No one gets a pass just because we felt compelled beyond our ability to resist. We are all responsible for our actions, no matter how strong the compulsion. There is help, and there is a way out. We'll talk about that a lot more in upcoming episodes. In the meantime, if you need help, we're here. Start by finding us on the web at purelifeministries.org. Read the material. Watch the testimonies, then call or email us, and we'll get you on the road to freedom and a new life. That's all for today. We'll see you next time on Purity for Life. Purity for Life is a production of Pure Life Ministries. For over 30 years, Pure Life Ministries has been the go-to for those whose lives have been devastated by sexual sin. Visit us on the web for more information about our life-changing counseling programs and powerful teaching materials. Also check out our video clips of men and women whose lives have been radically transformed. All that and more at purelifeministries.org.